0: The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love,
1: with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome
0: to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world from the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. We look at the various values that are associated with our Catholic history and our Catholic theology, the human person, family, equity, we look at ecology, we look at um, labor, we look at uh, world solidarity. All of those flow from our basic gospel beliefs. They flow from our understanding of the human person as made in the image and likeness of God. They flow from our understanding of the human person as sacred and social. So, all of those kind of flow into what are some of the core values that we bring to bear on what's going on in the world. And so at Just Love, we take a little bit of time to try to figure out what those are, to figure out, excuse me, what those um, issues are that really are worth a little bit of a reflection on us. And we look at a variety of different things just to see how they impact what is going on in the world. And we have a range of guests, Tom Dobbins, who is here with us. He does a great job in rounding up interesting guests so that we can kind of have those conversations. Tom, let me just ask you, though, since we're kind of at the beginning of the new
1: year, how has your new year gotten off to a good start? You know, it hasn't it's been, uh, you know, it's for one thing, it's warmer than I was anticipating it going to be. We had such a cold Christmas and it was just so freezing that actually we had a little bit of a warm up here in the Northeast, uh, for the very early new year. So I'm kind of grateful for that because, uh, the heat in my apartment isn't the best. Uh, I covered my air conditioner as best as I could. So, uh, and so, I'm very glad it's not that bitter, bitter cold. That was just penetrating. It was terrible. <laughs> yeah,
0: but I, you know, I got, Tom, you did something that wasn't very, very good. Oh. You, you talked about the heating in your apartment. So, correct. Now, I know last week we talked about um, individuals who are on the street and uh, really uh, it's a very, very difficult and tragic situation. And You know, we talked with Professor Hopper about, you know, some of the things that might deal with it. And as he said, interestingly, we kind of know what they are, but actually getting the will and the finances and the technical ability to implement them is a challenge to do it in a robust way. So I recognize that. But when you mentioned the issue of heating, Mm -hmm. um, I, in the church where I am living, Um, there's been just such a transition in the past few years from one type of heating to another, um, that the swings we've had in heating, (laughs) it's just like crazy. There were some days when inside the building, it was like in the fifties and like it was in the fifties, it was really cold. And then there've been other days when it was close to 90 in the building. So I mean, it's been such. (laughs) <laughs> uh, a swing back and forth about trying to figure out how the heating goes. and uh, But I don't mean to to uh, make too much of that when, unfortunately, there are yeah. thousands of people who are on the streets. And that's not a good thing to, um, to uh, it's, it's not a good thing at all. It is not a dignified way to live. And, you know, we just have to keep at it in trying to do better in terms of of uh <clears throat> getting people uh properly housed and the help they need to uh to stay housed. So Tom, um so let me
1: ask you, um any resolutions for the new year? You know, Monsieur, I I I didn't make a resolution this year. And and it's funny, it just was like, I guess Christmas, well I both my parents were not, they were kind of sick over Christmas. So I spent Christmas kind of like, you know, just kind of filling in and kind of doing, you know, what usually was the mom thing or the dad thing for the grandkids. And and so and New Year's just kind of crept up on me. So I really didn't make a resolution this year. I you know, I know I should have and because I usually do. But but this year I didn't. And, <laughs> you know, okay. I, I mean, I just I just didn't I, I I didn't want to get into it. But one thing I did do Monsignor for New Year's, it was interesting and it was a little different. I went to the fireworks in Central Park.
2: Huh.
1: yeah, uh-huh. it was it was really cool. They they have fireworks because they do a they do a run in Central Park, and as part of the run, they have the fireworks go off. And you you entered Seventy Second Street, and I have to tell you, Monsieur, this was like the best fireworks show that I think I've been to in the city ever. Because very few people were there, and it was kind of a rainy night. But it just like walking in, it just was it just was such a a really great show. So I. I, if uh, if you're around on New Year's Eve, I would recommend this highly before other people catch on to it. It really was. So a what great time? time? What time? Midnight. Midnight. <clears> you <throat> go in. They let you into the park, and then you basically they let you in starting like eleven thirty, and you go into by Bethesda Fountain, like down around that area, and then they just fire off the fireworks, and you're like right there, and it's they're above the trees, and it was really it was really beautiful. So I did do that for New Year's. So I I would recommend that highly if people come to New York, I would recommend. It. So. <clears throat> I
0: I do know about that. And the, here's, here's how I know about it. Because a few years ago, maybe about four or five years ago, pre-COVID, I was <clears throat> at somebody's apartment and they were having a very, very small New Year's gathering. But two of the people who were at that gathering, they were actually running. Oh, OK. And they were they were the real deal. I mean, they had all of this stuff on that was, I mean, they, let me tell you, this was the real deal. And, uh, but <clears throat> they did it because, I don't know, they left maybe around 11 o'clock to yeah. go there, mm-hmm. and they were back like by 1 o'clock. So, you know, we saw them on their way out. We saw them when they came, when they came back. So um, there were a lot of people. So <clears throat> that's good. And I think, Tom, you're right. We need to kind of do that before it becomes Times Square.
1: Exactly, exactly, Monsieur. I would recommend, get to it soon, <laughs> if okay. you possibly can.
0: <clears throat> so, Tom, why don't we go to our first guest?
1: Great.
0: <clears throat> our first guest is uh, is Dr. Lisa Fulham, who is a professor emerita at Santa Clara University. She is also at the New Baltimore Hannibal Hospital in West Coxsackie. Dr. Fulham, thank you so much for being with us on Just Love.
3: Thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
0: So, um, I just got to ask you, how, do, how does interest in female Jesuits and animals, how, come on, tell our listeners, how'd that, how that deal come together? How'd you get that gig?
3: Well, the the shortest version of that story is is that I was in veterinary school when a uh, visiting professor of moral theology visited the university where I was, and uh, I decided I wanted to try something a little different just for a break over intercession, and I was hooked. The uh, visiting scholar was uh, Father Charles Curran, who was a giant in the field of moral theology. Yep. I, was, I was so blessed to have been able to work with him and have worked with him since. So it's due to his kindness.
0: Oh, so th- so that's how you got, <clears throat> you now. are you originally an East Coaster or a West Coaster?
3: East Coaster. I'm a Vermonter by origin.
0: <laughs> okay. The uh, um, <clears throat> whereabouts in the East Coast?
3: uh springfield vermont right on the new hampshire border Uh,
0: okay so um uh not too far not too far away not at all and how long did you
3: spend out in santa clara uh i taught there for uh, at the jesuit school of theology which is a a a, a satellite campus of santa clara university up in berkeley i was there for 19 years whoa okay Um, JST uh, is, a, uh, is a member school of the Graduate Theological Union, which is uh, now not just uh, ecumenical, but increasingly inter interreligious, interfaith as well.
0: Uh, during that time, were you also practicing veterinary
3: medicine? Uh, not once I got there because the day job was, was too busy. But all the way through divinity school, as I, as, I, uh, as I studied, I was working part-time as a vet to pay the bills.
0: <laughs> and are you doing that now?
3: I am. I seem to have come full circle in my career. I'm back in veterinary medicine up in the upper Hudson Valley, so closer to New York than before. Ah,
0: well, that is great. So listen, uh, <clears throat> one of the things that I wanted to speak to you about, because it, it was quite intriguing to me, is um, Would you, uh, you did a little bit of research into one female Jesuit.
3: Mm-hmm. So tell us about that. Sure. Uh, I was, this was my first theological publication. I was a student at the time. I was in a class taught by the, uh, the great uh, Jesuit historian, John O'Malley. Uh, and um, I became fascinated by this woman who had become a Jesuit in, in, uh, uh, in Ignatius's time. If you if you talk to Jesuits they, and ask them, say, why aren't there women in the Society of Jesus? Very often they'll say, well, Ignatius said no. But that's not exactly true. Uh-huh. So I dug into that question and uh, found that there was a much more interesting story there than simply Ignatius said no. Ah,
0: uh-huh. so tell us what that interesting story is.
3: Okay. Well, I think there are three interrelated questions right? Uh, one of them is the story of Juana herself and how she became a Jesuit. Then there's the, the context, the broader question of Ignatian and, and, and women. And thirdly, there's the contemporary question, what does this say, perhaps, for the Society of Jesus to consider today? And I'd suggest that the, that the, um, the two three essential terms in dealing with this question is, is the question of vocation, who is God calling to this life? Secondly is availability, which is the centerpiece of Ignatian spirituality. Uh, uh, the, if, there's, if there is one thing that you can say ties all of Ignatian spirituality together, it is availability. Well, availability for what? To work toward the magis, the greater glory of God, however God is calling us. So um, so what happened with Ignatius and women might be easier to start there because it gives us the broader context in which Juana's question arose. That's great. All right. So Ignatius started his uh, his uh, uh, little group of what began as a compagnia, uh, a, a group of a group of people uh, doing pious works. At this time in Europe, compagnias were all over the place. They were lay, they were women, they were men, they were priests, and what they did is almost anything. They would engage in this or that kind of uh, charitable work. Um, and, uh, and they would pray together. So, you know, one group might uh, work with prisoners, another group might uh, work with um, uh, sick people uh, and, and then gather together and pray and, and share their resources. The Society of Jesus began as a compania, a company, societas in Latin, right? And it began then as, a, uh, as one of these groups of people with a, with a common religious purpose. This this group very quickly uh, attained closer the order or the character of a religious order, poverty, chastity, obedience, uh, some kind of common life involved. Now, all along, Ignatius had been working with women. A lot of his benefactors were women. And so it's not a surprise that women, especially women already doing this kind of uh, charitable work, uh, would become interested in this. Uh, What Ignatius said over and over and over again was women can't be Jesuits. If they would ask why, he would say, because we must always stand as with one foot raised, ready to go to whatever corner of the earth we need to, uh, to fulfill uh, God's work. So the question of availability uh, was the centerpiece for Ignatius as to why um, uh, Jesuits should be male. Uh, now, in the 16th century, that was that was pretty close to the case. It was hard for women to be uh, up and around. Uh, you know, you can't, you know, call up uh, in the 16th century way, get in touch with a woman and say, hey, I need you in Madagascar in the morning. Whereas it was easier for men to be uh, to be sent wherever they were. Needed.
0: Although I, I would probably argue uh, it would even be difficult in the 16th century to call up a man on the phone. To, it would to give be that message so but but i take your point
3: okay <laughs> <laughs> it would be it would be um uh and so and so in this context there was uh there were three women isabel roser and two friends of hers who kind of pressured ignatius into taking them under obedience roser was an older woman a widow And uh, when Ignatius expressed reluctance about taking her under under obedience, she um, uh, had a little bit of clout, and she pressured Pope Paul III to force Ignatius to admit them. Uh, Ignatius, under pressure from the Pope, said, okay, uh, admitted those three women to some kind of association with the society in 1545, and that was a total failure. It was clear that they did not have Jesuit life in mind. They were doing something more like what women's religious life tended to look like in the 16th century. They were uh, they were living a fairly comfortable life. They had servants. They were uh, doing good work, uh, but they were not at all available for mission as as Ignatius required. So let me,
0: you know, Doctor Doctor Fulham. Sure. Uh, we're speaking with Doctor Fulham, who is Professor Emerita, uh, Santa Clara University, and she is now. Uh, she is a doctor of veterinary medicine at the New Baltimore Animal Hospital in uh, New York. Um, so maybe say a little bit of that to for our listeners, because um, you know we may have a notion that well, religious community, religious all, all the same. But you said, uh, if I heard you correctly, they were more doing things in line with re- women religious communities, not what the Jesuit group was doing. Mm-hmm. And I guess some of us may say, well, wait a minute, the Jesuits is a religious community. What do you mean by they were doing things different?
3: Sure. Uh, every, every religious community has its own charism, has its own uh, way of life, way of being, and spirituality, spiritual focus. Uh, Benedictines, for example, take a vow of stability. They will stay with their community and they are devoted to uh, aura et labora. They pray the office every day and they work. Um, uh, so each religious community has its own has its own characteristic charism. What's interesting about the Jesuits, one of the things that's interesting about the Jesuits is they have no particular charism. They will do whatever is for the good of souls. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, and and that very broadness of charism has been what has been a, a, a attractive about them for men and actually women across the centuries. Where sorry, whereas most women's communities uh, at this time, women's communities were required to be cloistered; they were required to be um, uh, stable, shut off from the world, not engaged in active ministries. This became canon law with the Council of Trent.
0: Ah, And so because of that difference, did there come a point where the three of them who were kind of foistered upon Ignatius where it became clear and they they left or they separated?
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ignatius pressured the Pope right back to uh, mm-hmm. allow him to dismiss those women. And uh They took it kind of hard. It was said that they they had to have the the letter read to them four times before they could really internalize it. It was a a difficult time for all involved.
0: Uh Now, so, but did they actually become at least novice Jesuits? I'm using my words. No,
3: not really. They were women who had taken a vow of obedience to Ignatius, which in the broadest possible sense uh, made them Jesuits, but they weren't fully regarded by their fellow Jesuits as, as Jesuits at all. They were this group of women who were under obedience to Ignatius, not part of the community, not part of the organization.
0: So what about Juana?
3: Oh, ah, Juana com- comes along. Now, Juana was uh, the second daughter of uh, Emperor Charles V. Ah. Juana at this time had been uh, widowed for a couple of years When all this takes place, she was 19 years old. She had been widowed at 19 and was also, at the time, regent of Spain. She was the effective ruler of Spain. So she also had gotten to know some Jesuits as members of her court. Francis Borgia, for example, was was one of them, and uh, had become very impressed with the work and the charism of the Society of Jesus and and, um, appealed to Ignatius to admit her well, then the Jesuit leadership is in kind of a spot, aren't they? Because if they want to do their ministerial works in Spain, it would be a poor idea to alienate the person running Spain at the time.
0: um, Dr. Foam, pardon me for saying the next. I am not a Jesuit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm one of those who's not a Jesuit, who just has the greatest appreciation for what the Jesuits have done, what they are doing Mm -hmm. I I think some of the jokes about Jesuits are just improper, etc. So having said that, I would also say that the Jesuits have never been shy about evangelizing those in positions of power or authority.
3: That is exactly right.
0: So Juana comes with not a bad CV. (laughs)
3: That's right. So... She can be useful to the society, but it wasn't only political uh, advantage that led the Jesuits to to consider her request. Uh, she also was a, a woman of pretty impressive spiritual profundity for a nineteen year old, right? right. Uh, and was somebody that they 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 really respected. Um, and so those two reasons, right her 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 political power and her and her ability to help the society but also their respect for what seemed to them to be a, a real vocation to the society.
0: Okay.
3: Now- um, So let's they, cut
0: to the chase. Did she get in?
3: She did get in. And, ah. what's, and what's striking about it is they admitted her to the society, not in some special category for regions of Spain, But in the most ordinary way possible, they Uh said she's going to be um, they they spoke of her being in a two year probationary period, what we would call novitiate now. Right. right? And then she would be able to enter the society in the ordinary way there. And um, they they talked about her always using a pseudonym. They called her Mateo Sanchez. And they said, well, we can't be forced to admit her because after this previous experience with Isabel Roser, they had gotten permission from the Pope never to be required to admit some, any particular person. Makes perfect sense, right? right. orders can't be required to admit particular people. Uh, and so they said, yeah, we can't be forced to do this. On the other hand, uh, they said, it seems to us that it would be better to admit her. Uh, so they did. She entered as a, as a novice. Two years later, when she was had completed her novitiate, what happened then? No one knows. Ah, Presumably, she continued on to the, the next phase of Jesuit formation uh, to be a uh, scholastic. But at the time that they decided to admit her, they said this must be kept very quiet as in confession. And apparently it was. Ah. What we know from the outside is that Juana never married. That her palace was, by the standards of sixteenth century's palaces, very very austere. Uh, Borgia spoke of it as more like a convent than a palace, Um, and um, uh, and and so obedience. That's a little tougher for the person running Spain, but (laughs) she would always couch her communications with the Jesuit leadership in terms of gratitude and requests, rather more than. The commands that were her natural language as as uh, as, as oh. the emperor
0: so so while they kept some of that secret <clears throat> what, so it's it was public that she kind of entered the novitiate
3: no, that was very secret okay, because <clears throat> that would have been a political cataclysm because then well pretty right. continuously the 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 marital lives of of nobility really are about establishing alliances among countries right so it would have been um a matter that would have ticked off the emperor no end if he had heard that his daughter had been allowed um, by this really very young group of of male religious the society of jesus was only 14 years in existence at this time to to join and therefore uh cut off her marital prospects as a as a bargaining chip with other countries
0: ah ah. so
3: We don't know much of what happened in her later life. Yep. We know she was admitted to the society. We know that she continued to work on behalf of the society for the rest of her life. And that, um, uh, again, everything points to her first going through with this entry into this two-year probationary period of novitiate and continuing Mm -hmm. on in her close relationship with with the society.
0: But we have no evidence that she was ever thrown out right not a bit because i mean you know academically and logically you can't prove something from an absence but you can get a clear sense of 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 what was what was going on and you mentioned we're talking about her now at age 19 yep we must know when she died, if she was the regent of Spain, how, how long did she live for? Uh,
3: she died at 38, ah. uh, 38, 39. So wow. she gave the rest of her life to this kind of work. Um, wow! Even after she was no longer the active principal ruler of Spain, she continued in this in this lifestyle and continued as still a very, ah. very powerful person to work f- for the uh, uh, benefit of the society.
0: So did the society, and this is completely not not irrelevant, but it's not the same question did I mean, I know the Franciscans and uh, you know what spun off were community of women religious. Did any community of, of women religious spit off from the Jesuits?
3: Yeah, there have been a couple. Uh, one was uh, the uh, Institute of the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, founded by Mary Ward. Mary Ward was a close uh, collaborator with uh, some English Jesuits uh, during her lifetime. What happened to Mary Ward, though, is that even though wherever she went, she was successful in founding schools and building communities. This very quickly became a target of attacks because this was not regarded as a proper way of life for women religious at the time. Okay. And in fact, Mary Ward wound up uh, imprisoned in a convent of the poor Clares of the Second Order Franciscans um, as a result of her of her endeavors.
0: Well, uh, listen, Dr. Fulham, I learned a whole lot. I was just delighted by that, uh, you know, conversation and and just I learned so, so much. So thank you. Thanks for spending the time on Just Love and thank you for the work that you did in kind of illuminating our our audience. And thanks for the work you're doing in veterinary medicine. Thanks so much.
3: You're very welcome. And uh, here's hoping that one is becomes a precedent and not merely an exception in Jesuit history.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I know we are a church um, and, and we don't always act swiftly. 400 years or 500 years, I'm not getting my hopes up. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, Uh, Listen, Dr. Fuller, thanks so much for being with us on Just Love.
3: Thank you very much. A delight.
0: Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just, and it will be more compassionate. Tom, I think we're going to take a break now, and we will be back in just a couple minutes to speak some more with with our new guests. This is the Catholic Channel, Sirius
2: XM 129.
0: Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be. More just and it will be more compassionate. You know, we do talk about a lot of large issues here on Just Love, and rightly so. Um, we just kind of had, I think, a fun conversation with Dr. Fulham about uh, the early times of the Jesuit order and how some of the political, social issues of the time impacted a few things and how. Um, They even began to admit some uh, women to the Jesuits in a variety of ways. Three personally loyal to Ignatius, another one who seemingly went through the novitiate as a Jesuit, Um, maybe, probably, who knows, even became a scholastic because it was secret because she was the regent of Spain. So the records are not really all that clear on that. So uh, we talk about a lot of those big things, but we also say that if we ourselves act in a way that is just, compassionate, by loving our neighbor, loving God and loving ourselves, then the broader society becomes more just and more compassionate. If bunches of people are doing that over and over again, then we create a world which is fairer. It's more compassionate, and that's kind of what we are. Um, we are, you know, trying to do by discussing some of these broader issues. But we can't forget about the issue of our own personal responsibility. And you know, I think sometimes we think that social responsibility and personal responsibility are op- opposite to each other. No, 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 they're not opposites. Every now and then, they may be in a little bit of tension. But for the most part, they should be complementary. We need society to be compassionate, and we also need our world to be compassionate. So, anyway, let's uh, society, I'm sorry, and ourselves. So, let's go on now to our next guest. Our next guest is Michelle Ster- Sterlace, who is the executive director of Feminists Choosing Life of. New York uh, of New York. I'm delighted that we have her on as a guest on just uh, on just love, Uh, Michelle. Thank you for being with us on just
2: love. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Great. So, um, you know, Michelle, why don't you give our listeners just a little bit of a sense of yourself, a little bit of your own history, and how you have now become the Executive Director of Feminists Choosing Life of New York. So just give us a little bit of a brief um, <clears throat> rundown of your resume.
2: Okay. Well, um, I am uh, an attorney, um, and I recently went back to school uh, for an advanced law degree in conflict resolution. Um, I uh, grew up experiencing poverty. I was homeless a few times And my heart has always been drawn um, to vulnerable people and populations and the, you know, heartfelt desire to help. Um, And so here I am at Feminist Choosing Life of New York, and I know of no other place to be um, in terms of having the ability to really advocate um, for life and for vulnerable people.
0: Before this, um, you... uh... I'm sorry, excuse me. Um, I mean, you've been a lawyer for a while. Uh, What other legal work have you done before this uh, position?
2: Excellent, thank you for asking. I was an attorney at the Legal Services for the Elderly Disabled or Disadvantaged where I represented relatives petitioning for custody or guardianship of abused and neglected children. I then went on to serve as a full-time children's attorney. I still continue to work as a children's attorney where I represent children caught in the throes of conflict. Um, I also spent some time I- at the uh, federal district court in Western New York, um, serving as the ADR or Alternative Dispute Resolutions Program Administrator, the assistant um, too, and I was the confidential judicial law clerk for the chief judge um, at the time um, here in Buffalo at the federal courthouse.
0: So, Michelle, you—I mean, you yourself volunteered the fact that you. Uh... Uh, had some you you have some difficulties in your life, homeless poverty, et cetera. Um, how does you, your how do you think your kind of personal experience um impacts your study and your practice of the law?
2: Yeah, I never really I mean, on some level, it was always the motivating force for me to want to advocate on behalf of vulnerable people experiencing you know, difficulty but um so but at the same time especially in this pro life or consistent life movement that i'm a part of now you hear so much about how poverty or various obstacles should impede our ability to move forward or to thrive and you know what often comes to mind is you know no one's better off dead. And so I think that, um, you know, I'm thankful for all of the obstacles and difficulties that I've experienced, because I think ultimately, they can serve as the fiercest driver, you know, to being a a, a, a strong advocate, you know, for those in need, and for, for those that need help, a kind, considerate, loving person that's, you know, willing to sort of put their, you know, nose to the grindstone and, and move forward. So...
0: So <clears throat> your experience <clears throat> is is very important in your practice of, of law.
2: Sure. I mean, I'm currently serving as executive director of a nonprofit, so I'm not practicing law in that capacity. But as a current children's attorney, I mean, absolutely. You know,
0: there's so, <clears throat> you know so let's go. Let's go on a little bit further. Tell me about the organization Feminist Choosing Life of New York. How did that found and what's its mission and what some of the things it's doing now?
2: Yes, we are um, a human rights coalition that educates on the impacts and root causes of publicly sanctioned lethal violence, including abortion, war, violent military action, assisted suicide and capital punishment. So like the early feminist suffragists, we engage in grassroots activism and we embrace the core principles of nonviolence and non-discrimination. We're pro-woman, we're pro-life. Um, we promote whole life feminism, which I think Monsignor may be another, you know, maybe, you know, show to talk about. Uh, but and the consistent life ethic, which I believe your listeners are 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 so well aware of. And that is... You know, authentically recognizing the value and dignity of every member of the human family from conception to natural death, and uh, and 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 promoting and really embracing and looking to protect human life regardless of cost or convenience, and I, I think that's so essential right now in our given our the current narrative, regardless of cost or convenience, it's a lot. It's a lot. Many times more convenient, less costly to, you know, engage in euthanasia, engage in assisted suicide, engage in capital punishment, engage in abortion, engage in war. Promoting a culture of life is difficult and it is costly.
0: And <clears throat> well, in in the in the current world that kind of we live in and that you're involved in so often. um let me ask a kind of question why is this such a divisive issue why as a nation when it comes to the issue of abortion does it is it such a a tense difficult angry issue in so so often well
2: i believe and, and I you know, can't necessarily speak for the pro-choice special interests or narrative, but that abortion narrative centers around my body, my choice. This is my life. I want to do as a woman what I want to do no matter what. And what I think they're missing is the fact that, pre- you know, pregnancy involves a distinct human being. Right. So it's no longer just, you know, the woman's body, but a separate life there. But But at the same time, the abortion narrative elevates the wombless male anatomy as normative, as the standard bearer of equality right? And so it fails to recognize the biological differences between men and women. Women have wombs. We have the power to gestate human life. And when you don't recognize those biological realities, it denigrates social institutions, making it near impossible for me to be a woman with a womb and that's pregnant and to deliver a child and still make partner at at my law firm. We need affordable childcare. We need more flexible work time. We have social institutions that continue on in the United States that are centered around that stereotypical male that is detached from pregnancy and detached from parenthood. I mean, that's stereotypical. Things are changing. But we need a culture that embraces my role as a smart, ambitious mother. That I I want to pursue my intellectual um, endeavors while at the same time properly parenting my children.
0: And that is not an easy case to make in our society, is it?
2: No. I mean, because it's a lot easier to tell me you know, for Planned Parenthood or any other pro-choice special interest group to say, or the abortion laws that currently exist, that I must behave like a stereotypical male if I want to achieve. That means I have to kill my offspring. I have to abort my child so that I can go to work 80 hours a week without any flex time, without any, you know, support system and achieve my goals. I mean, our whole life feminism Feminism is about that ability to maneuver within civic society on equal footing as a mother or even as a father, mm-hmm. as a parent, so that we can parent and at the same time excel and achieve within our professional capacities. We've and got a long ways to go on that.
0: Yeah. I think boy, those are very, very good points that are worth thinking thinking about. I would also You know, suspect, I don't know this, but I would suspect that some of uh, some allies who are very much pro-life might become a little bit uncomfortable with the term feminist or feminism, because that kind of may not be the ordinary way that they think of the people who are pro-life you experience some of that?
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's unfortunate, but at the same time, it's a challenge. I mean, Feminist using Life of New York is here to reclaim feminism. The Our feminist foremothers were pro-life. They opposed treating unborn children as property to be disposed of as they saw fit. Those suffragists that were fighting for the right not to be treated as, pop, as property and for the right, you know, to vote. So I, I think that Early, you know, feminism began as as something that was, I'm gonna say pro-life and whole life. And it wasn't really, and this is well documented in especially Su- Susan Browder's book, Subverted, that that mainstream feminism began to embrace the abortion narrative in the 1960s when the sexual revolution and the women's movement converged. So today we have a a more twisted narrative on feminism. And so, you know, ultimately, feminism, if you look it up in the Webster's Dictionary, it's very simple. And it's about our ability to equally participate in civic society as women.
0: That is pretty straightforward and pretty simple. You mentioned, we're speaking with Michelle Sterlace, the executive director of Feminist Choosing Life of New York. You mentioned one other factor or one other phrase. You talked about the biological reality of women um, being able to gestate, give birth. Part of what we seemingly are experiencing in society right now is that... um, even gender is becoming by at least some to be much more fluid and not as related to, um, to biology as it may have been a generation ago. Is that part of what the atmosphere that you're experiencing?
2: I mean, that's clearly a part of the, narrative at this point in time in our what I consider a post-modernistic existential culture. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's it's women who have wombs that again have that power to gestate human life. And so we are On a a collision course, really with ourselves, if we, if we continue, or, or, you know, to deny, or even look to further deny, um, you know, the status of womanhood, and that, you know, we have, you know, the power again to gestate human life that doesn't give us the power to kill. As abortion, you know, does. Right. But at the same time, again, I as a woman want to move forward with with all of my capacity and still parent. And that means altering the civic and social institutions that continue to exist and to cater to stereotypical male behavior. Right. I'm, I'm I'm only asking for that opportunity as 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 a woman and as a mother to achieve again, according to my intellectual capacities. And and there needs to be change there, especially if I was a poor woman faced with an unplanned pregnancy. It becomes even more difficult.
0: So um, let me let me share something. We had a guest on uh, a few weeks ago who was speaking about um the issue of abortion and, and pro-life. And he used a phrase, let me run the phrase by you to see if it re- how it resonates with you. He talked in terms of prenatal justice. And that was a phrase he was used to indicate that we need to think of uh, the, the issue of abortion in terms of what is the just thing to do how's that phrase strike you prenatal justice
2: I mean I mean I mean the term itself it sounds incredible I mean I, I think you know unborn children are people too I mean there is clear scientific consensus that human life begins at conception clear scientific consensus, you know, the issue or the debate is, you know, whether or not we want to give that unborn human being the status of personhood. But nevertheless, scientific consensus is clear that the unborn child is a human being at the moment of conception. And you know, so they, they need justice. They need a voice. We're here to, you know, give help give them a voice.
0: Yeah. You know, it was interesting when I was reading some things uh, within the past year or so, I was very um, interested when I read that the American College of Pediatricians, I believe it is, that they, their affirmation is that human life does begin at conception, as you just said. Um, I was, I was, to be honest, a little bit surprised that they, relatively recently reaffirmed that that position yes
2: i mean we have such technology in 2023 and there's no denying that the technology that we have and the advances have only made it more clear that it's a human being and as someone that embraces the consistent life ethic and recognizes again that intrinsic value of every member of the human family, whether that person is on death row, Monsignor, or in a military zone or a war zone, in utero, aged, diseased, or disabled, you know, we, we find it, it it's incumbent that we promote a culture of life.
0: Michelle Sterlase, let me say thank you. Thank you for making our audience a lot more aware, and a lot more on top of a very, very important issue. And and thank you for the work that you have done. And um, thank you for all the work you've done in a variety of different ways in a very, very comprehensive approach to human life. Thank you so much for what the the work is that you are doing.
2: Thank you, Monsignor. Thank you so much for this opportunity.
0: Michelle Sterlace, the Executive Director of Feminist Choosing Life of New York. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Join us when we come back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
3: Just do it.
0: Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. As we talk about all the time, we talk about a variety of topics that are important to us uh, as Catholics and how they uh, impact uh, the world we live in and how they impact issues of justice, issues of charity. Um, One of the things that we do do as a church is try to figure out how collectively we can make those positive impacts to make Society more just and more compassionate. Tom, I know that you have been involved in a number of for a number of years in the annual gathering uh, of various Catholic social ministry groups to kind of strategize, think about, raise awareness, become more informed about those issues that impact us. So, Tom, mm-hmm. I think in a uh, in a few weeks. You're going to uh, the social ministry gathering in
1: Washington D.C. I, am I correct in that? That's right, Monsieur. Yes, we're going to be going down for the first time in three years since before the pandemic. Okay, the first time Just of us. Briefly,
0: what do you see as two or three of the top issues that are going to be on the agenda of that meeting?
1: I think the first Monsieur is obviously the the issue of migration and and immigration is going to be major. I think, you know, obviously uh, from the perspective of our Catholic social teaching, you know, we we know while we certainly respect, uh, you know, the ability of nations to have borders and control their borders, we also know we have to be welcoming of our brothers and sisters and we have to treat people with dignity and respect. So that's, I think, going to be front and center when we go to Congress to wind up talking to folks about that. Um, also, I think that we're going to be... Um, talking a bit about um, uh, help for the less fortunate. And I know one of those things is both domestically and internationally. One of them has to do with uh, food assistance. And I know, I think the farm bill is coming up for reauthorization, Monsignor. And as many people know, uh, uh, what's popularly known as food stamps is authorized through the farm bill. And that is so essential for us being able to feed our brothers and sisters uh, here you know, domestically. So I think that's one thing that is going to be um, something we're going to wind up talking about. But we're also going to wind up talking about international aid too, Monsignor. And, and I think that that's something very important. As you had mentioned a little bit um, uh, le- during last week's show, we always have to be cognizant of how uh, our brothers and sisters are faring in other countries. When they come here, they're coming for a reason. So while we're not responsible for everything that goes on in those countries, when we can help, we should help. So that's something we're going to be doing too. So on that on that
0: that topic, um, what do you think? I mean, how? Which which aspects of that topic do you think we're going to deal with?
1: They always um, deal, Monsignor. They 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 always ask for an increase in foreign aid, okay. um, and I think you know. So they always will ask in a, in a generic sense. Uh, and they want it to be poverty directed foreign aid, not military aid. So there's always a specific ask because military aid is sometimes very easily given by the United States. But it's actually the poverty directed aid. Um, so it would be water assistance with drilling wells. I think it'd be assistance with farming, assistance with food. Really. These are the kind of things we're going to go to the hill in this well.
0: Tom, thank you so much. Uh, this is Just Love. The Catholic Channel will join us again next week at SiriusXM129. Thanks for being with us.
1: You're listening to The
2: Catholic Channel, SiriusXM129.